Hey, if, you, if somebody has a, a couple people have a Bible with them and wouldn't mind looking up two scriptures for me, we're going to look at, we may look at more than these, these three, but um, one would be, in their short verses, Ephesians 4, 30 and 31. Would anybody be willing to read that, stand up and read it kind of loud? Anybody? We're going to practice being together. All right, there's one. And Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Anybody? There we go, right there. All right, so we got my two readers. While you guys are looking that up, have you been following in the, in the news? It's, it's been around, I've known about this drug for, let me think, I, I, I think I heard about it two and a half years ago. I think it's called Narcan. You're, are you familiar? It's become very, very much in the news. Uh, they're, they're raising money now that almost any first responder or any person, anybody who would be, for whatever reason, in relationship with a person who has opiate addiction, this, I heard on NPR News this week, I heard a doctor say, this is the first legitimate wonder drug that there has ever been. And the reason it's a wonder drug is it only does one thing, it can reverse immediately the effects of an opiate addiction or an opiate overdose, and it has zero side effect and doesn't stay in your system. It does one thing, it just brings you back to life. And I say that I found out about it two and a half years ago when I got a call from a, an acquaintance who was a first responder who knew that I had a friend who was a heroin addict. And he found her in the park dead. No vital signs, heroin needle next to her, clearly an overdose. And he was calling me minutes, minutes after he had injected her with this Narcan drug. And I could hear her in the background screaming at him because she was mad that he brought her back to life. She was, in fact, trying to kill herself with an opioid overdose. She was dead. And that drug immediately brought her back to life. First time I ran into that, and now I've been hearing about it a long time. I, I, I share that because I, I think I'm careful about this. I, I, I don't want to simplify anything in, in, the, in the Bible. I think there's a lot of interesting complexity to the stories in the Scripture. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think there's a wonder drug in the story that we've been given. There's, there's, a, there's a word that seems to be the word that is part of what it means to be dead and then alive. And the word we're going to look at today, this wonder drug of the story of Scripture, is the word forgiveness. The forgiveness that we experience, for sure. But maybe more importantly, as it relates to our conversation today, the forgiveness that we're willing to give the life that we're willing to breathe in and out. So, let, let's look at some, or listen, I guess, to some scripture. Ephesians 4, right there. Yep.
And then Matthew. And then the passage I'm going to read is found in Colossians, similar to the Ephesians one, but a little longer. This is found in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 16. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loved, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I, I, I wonder if there are friends here in, the, in our community gathered here together that might already have a little anxiety about this conversation. Not everybody. We've all experienced being sinned against and injured and hurt and, you know, different degrees. But there are some folks in this room who have suffered the most severe kinds of pains and abuse. And, and I, I want to be careful that what, what has perhaps been this existential lifetime angst for you about what to do with the person who hurt you is perhaps even right now causing you some anxiety. So I want to just acknowledge that what may sound easy for me to talk about for you has been a lifetime struggle. And I, I don't want to minimize that. But the intention is for us to live in life. I think one of the big stories of the Bible, especially when Jesus kept repeating this word life, he came to give us life, he, he came to set us free, he came so we could really be, we could live. But we were walking around breathing before he came and offered us life. Isn't that life? No, that isn't life. That's existing. And a person who is stuck in unforgiveness is existing, but probably isn't alive. So I'm going to, um, before I talk about how we can maybe accomplish this or experience this forgiveness, I, I want to just do a little bit of background work. One, I want to talk about some foundational assumptions about forgiveness. One of the foundational assumptions about forgiveness, if there is this reality called forgiveness, then there must be a reality called sin. Forgiveness is about sin. Now, I know that's not the most popular word in our culture today. I think some people have, in some ways, attempted to work around the work of forgiveness by sort of doing away with the concept of sin. But it's about sin. A long time ago, there was a girl in my life who was, I don't know how to make it so it doesn't sound like hyperbole, was so demanding, beyond demanding. She, she insisted always that the world revolved around her, and I was 
one of the primary parts of that orbit. She, she would demand by screaming her desire. If something so slight as the temperature wasn't the right temperature, that was my responsibility. That, that her, her food be prepared properly, that was my responsibility. She didn't, she didn't offer me words. She, she didn't ask me for things. She demanded them with screaming and, and tears. Never once did she thank me. But she never sinned against me. She was just my little baby girl. She was just six months old. She was a tyrant. She ran the home. But she didn't sin against me. We, we, we I think, have begun to sort of, and I could be wrong, please know that anything we're talking about today is up for debate. <laughs> like, I am not certain about any of the, some of the minutiae of what we'll talk about. But I'm pretty convinced that we've used the word forgiven so easily that we've lost the impact of what it's related to. Um, only people who have hurt you can be forgiven. I think part of my life work, I identified it early out of Bible college, was I found this community of folks who would use this word, people who had been hurt by church. I, I've always sort of gravitated to folks who've, who've suffered sort of those religious or institutional wounds. It, it's, it's just a category, but if I'm being real honest, an institution can't hurt you. Only a person can actually hurt you. What I've discovered, and I still like that audience, I find myself a little bit in that audience. I'm sympathetic. I, I think it's part of, of what we do as brothers and sisters in Christ together. But what happens is we sort of kind of hide behind something. If, if it's the church that hurt me, then there's no mechanism for reconciliation because that's just an institution. Evangelicals can't hurt you. The Republicans can't hurt you, or Democrats can't hurt you. An institution, focus on the family, can't, because those institutions can't repent. But the people who belong, some of the people who belong, they might have hurt you. That's a different story. I've heard people talk about, and I want to be careful here, about forgiving themselves. I think what they probably mean is they're struggling receiving and believing in the forgiveness that Jesus has offered them. I don't know that you really forgive yourself, but again, I could be wrong. And I've often heard in this last season of my life people who talk about forgiving God. And I don't think we can do that because God has never sinned against you. Do you see what I'm separating? I'm separating the word hurt from the word sin. Sin has this sense of being owed something. Just this morning, I was in Starbucks thinking about our conversation today, and 
I was becoming visibly agitated and irritated by the man who was in the chair table next to me having a loud and long conversation on his phone. And I, I, I felt that irritation. I felt that... And then as I'm sitting here, as Providence would have it, working on a message like this, and I'm really irritated. And it dawns on me, I believe I have the right to sit quietly when I'm getting ready for a sermon in Starbucks. He does not owe me that. He really did nothing wrong. I was just irritated. There's a difference between being hurt and being sinned against. I think, in, in some ways, this is maybe the nuance that Paul is talking about. Let me read that sentence for you again. Make allowance for each other's faults. Make allowance, make room for the imperfection of other humans. People who maybe have talked too loud in public. People who cut us off in traffic. And Forgive anyone who sins against you. I think they're two different mechanisms. How do you know if you're unforgiving? I don't know. Have you ever wondered that? I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but when I hear Jesus' words as sort of the, the uh, addendum to the Lord's Prayer. The only part of the Lord's Prayer that he goes back to sort of explain. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us and then we continue with the Lord's Prayer. But then at the end of the Lord's Prayer, he comes back and says, by the way, if you don't forgive, you won't experience forgiveness. So I'm wondering, gosh, am I, am I unforgiving? Here's, again, just doing some foundational work. Here's something to consider. If you hope that something bad will happen to the person who hurt you, you might be unforgiving. If you imagine and fantasize being able to, 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 to balance the scales of justice by something usually worse than what happened to you happening to them, you might be struggling with unforgiveness. For just a moment, do you remember... The, the, the Old Testament version of justice was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Remember that. But remember that that was a merciful solution at that time to a social issue. Because if somebody took your eye, you do not want to only take their eye. You want something far worse to happen to them. And if you had the power, you would do that to them. If you can't sleep, if you keep mentally replaying the situation, if in your heart you believe what you want is what you would describe as justice, the ability to make things fair, you might be struggling with unforgiveness.
there are um, some alternatives to forgiveness. There are ways in which we can begin to believe that we're, we're empowered to do something. One that I've noticed in me recently that I'd never put together was this word gossip. I don't know if you've noticed, often in the New Testament, gossip is one of those sins that gets a lot of attention. It's, it's an incredibly destructive sin. I've never thought of it as that destructive. As a matter of fact, I kind of always have thought in some weird way that it's kind of helpful. And I've noticed what I've done when I'm unforgiving is there's a correlation that I will gossip about the person to whom I am unforgiving. Because if you cannot like them the way I don't like them, maybe that'll make me feel better. If you knew the real truth. I think some, one of the alternatives we have for forgiveness is sort of emotional management. If I can sort of do something to sort of the, the angst that I get when I start thinking about this offense, this pain that I've experienced. There's different techniques. People do yoga or they do whatever they do, but it, it, sometimes we mask forgiveness as emotional management. I'll go for a run. I'll just quit thinking about it. Hate and resentment are also manifestations. All right. I want to talk about what it might look like, and I know that it looks like I'm stealing from Brad Jerzak, and I can't remember if he talked about forgiveness in his chair illustration. Those of you that remember the, from the conference, he, he told the story of the gospel, which means good news, and the story of the chairs. I want to talk about forgiveness as it relates to these chairs. One of the verses that was difficult for me as a young Christian. One of the very first verses I was supposed to memorize. I became a, a follower of Jesus in a passionate way in ninth grade, and I was uh, enfolded into a community of what we today would describe as fundamentalists. I'm not using that pejoratively. They described themselves as fundamentalists. That was a badge of honor for them. And what they meant by fundamentalists is we are not like those other lazy Christians. We're the ones who work really hard at this. We're the ones who, without us, there would be no truth protected. And one of the first verses I was supposed to memorize was 1 John 1, 9. Anybody else? Great verse. Anybody else memorize that verse? If we, forgive our, if we um, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so every night it was my responsibility to try to remember everything I had done that was wrong. And I would, okay, God, I, and not a bad, that's not a bad, I'm not saying that's a bad spiritual practice, but here's what happened was I was deathly afraid of what? I would miss something. And if I miss something, I'm out. Let me see if I can talk about forgiveness with these chairs. Here's what I mean 
by forgiveness, and I think is the story. I think forgiveness is another way to talk about relationship. So as God would want for us, let's use God, for example, if God is one of the chairs and I'm one of the chairs, the way I heard 1 John 1, 9 was like this. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So in other words, if I don't confess this is God, then God would have to turn his back on me because God is holy and he can't deal with people who forget their sins. And so my job was to see if I could get God to turn around and face me again, to be in relationship with me. I don't believe that's what the story's talking about. I don't, from now on, just so we're clear, God's chair never turns away. There is what is sort of this idea of declared truth and experiential truth. I'm forgiven. I, I trusted Jesus. I knew that he had died for my sins. I was forgiven. If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are gone. It's the, the slate is wiped clean and all of that. But what, what happens, I think, in the harboring of sin or unforgiveness is not that God turns, but I turn. I want, I want to see if I can make this better on my own. I want to see if I can work it out. Often, I would try to be good so that God would then like me, so I could sort of deserve to turn the chair and be in relationship with God and kind of feel good about myself. The same mechanism, I think, is happening in, in human relationships. I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, if I'm unforgiving, I don't experience forgiveness. It isn't that God, if, if I'm harboring unforgiveness, that God is going, well, that's... I can't do that. I think what's happening is I'm not a person who's able to receive forgiveness. Not that it isn't offered by God. But unforgiveness is simply my turning my back on God. But let's talk about people. The different things that can happen. This is, a, this is your friend, brother, sister in Christ. This is, this is me. This is us. In my one scenario, my friend intentionally injures me, hurts me. They make it clear they do not want to be in relationship with me. If somebody sins against me, that's not my fault in this scenario. Now, I'm not necessarily unforgiving because that hasn't become part of the the process yet. Here's what one scenario Jesus talks about in Matthew or Luke 18, I think, when he talks about if somebody sins and they come to me and they say to me, Carl, I'm so sorry I did that bad thing to you. Will you forgive me? Now, just so we're clear, some ways, this is the easiest scenario to deal with. I'm not saying it's easy, but of all the scenarios, this is perhaps the easiest. When someone acknowledges the, the thing, the hurt, the pain they've done to you, they own it, and they ask you to forgive them. Now you have the choice. You can say, no, I won't forgive you. Or you can say, yes, I will forgive you. How, how many times does that have to happen before you're eligible to just turn your back, though? 
Jesus did some math on that, remember? 490. <laughs> and I'm not so sure Jesus is talking about keeping track of the four, you know, 489, and you only got one more to go. Seems his point is, yes, that can always happen. I think, unf- I think forgiveness that Jesus is talking about is me saying yes to being to the possibility of relationship. Now let's talk about some hard situations. Let's say there has been 489 of these scenarios. Each time the person has said, I'm sorry. A contemporary word that, I don't know if that was a word 2,000 years ago, a word we might give to this is boundaries. What do I do about personal boundaries? What do I do if somebody keeps sort of violating my trust? I don't think this is unforgiveness. I don't think that perhaps for a season distancing myself, but open to relationship as best I can, I don't think that's unforgiveness. I think this is unforgiveness. No. But I think this, but with distance, might be wisdom. Some of you are in that scenario. Uh, An example might be a person who's in an abusive relationship. You can be both forgiving and safe. Those do not have to conflict. It was interesting, I, when I, I forgot I, earlier when I was talking about this being God, that, that in, in one sense, remember that the story of us with God is really like this. The, 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 the story as it is one day going to be our reality, and at moments we taste it now, is that there is nothing between us, that you even prayed our breath, our, our, our DNA, is, is connected to God. We are in Christ. We are loved like children. It, it's an amazing story. But the reality is we have moments in life where we've distanced ourselves from that. Even in the husband and wife relationship, I think why it's such a critical part of the story is that, that a man and, 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 and woman can become one. The story of relationship is ultimately a story of oneness. When when Jesus and Paul talk about the body of Christ, they talk about being one. It's this unbelievable intimacy. But our reality is that things in life happen. And again, it is not God moving from us, but it is us moving from him. Unforgiveness. I think, is me saying no to any possibility of relationship. There may be other better examples, but that's one that might practically help us. And if I'm honest, my unforgiveness is often because I want that person to suffer. And perhaps the best I can do is let them suffer in loneliness.
I'm going to stop. How do you feel about this? Is there, am I missing something? Maybe you have a question or a comment? I'll repeat it if you want to. I know it feels weird in a spread out audience to, to have conversation, but feel free. Do you have a question? Yeah. Who can initiate forgiveness? It's a great question. I would think anybody. What do you think? Are you thinking of something specific? That's excellent. Yeah, because I think it's in the Luke 18 one when he says, if somebody has sinned, if a brother or sister has sinned against you, you can go to them and confront them about that. Hey, you did this thing and it hurt me. That's where Peter, see, this is where Peter asked that question. He goes, well, how many times do I have to do that? Yeah, so anybody could initiate that. But yeah, you, you can initiate, hey, you sinned against me. What else? What other thoughts do you have? Yeah, Zach. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no question. That's a great comment. So the, the story that follows that question of Peter's, how often do I have to do this, is about this owing. One guy owes a bazillion dollars and gets forgiven. But he is owed by someone else a hundred bucks and is unwilling to forgive. And he's trapped. That's what he says about the, the darkness. He's trapped in his unforgiveness. Yeah. Somebody, yeah. Does forgiveness necessarily result in reconciliation? The problem with reconciliation is that's a two-party agreement. But forgiveness, I believe, is at least unilateral in its extension. So, for instance, if we are to forgive like Jesus prayed, we're going to forgive like God forgave us, it's a unilateral proposition. Whether I receive it or not is not what's the issue at that point. Jesus is never withholding forgiveness. So, he's saying to me, am I withholding forgiveness? Not am I in relationship because I can't control the other person. And back to the safety thing, there are, I can be open to forgiveness but I may not be open to intimacy in the same way with another human. So you just stole my next point. The question was, what about somebody who's died? I, I, I won't go into the details. Um, You've heard my story. I, I, I had a pretty abusive stepdad. And it, it, it marked me in my life. He abused me in all kinds of ways. And I was with my therapist, this was years ago, Christian counselor, and she, she was asking me, what, what did I really want? Well, if I, if I could have empowered that seven-year-old little boy who was getting a beat, if I could have empowered him to say something, 
What would, you, what would he have liked to have said? And so I thought, well, that's a, I just said it, and she wrote it all down. And then literally, I think the most cathartic moment in my life, when she said, Carl, until you tell him those things, I don't think you'll forgive him. And so she took, <laughs> she took that, um, that little notebook she'd been writing on, she opened it up, and she put it in a chair. And so she had me sit in front of that chair, and she said, I want you just for a moment, Carl, to pretend that's Jim, your stepdad. And I want you to tell him what it felt like to be a seven-year-old boy experiencing what you experienced. And man, I was trembling, like as if he were physically there. And I began to say the things that had happened to me. And then I told him what I had longed for, how much I wanted him to love me and approve of me. And at the end of that session, what was really weird was I said, and I forgive you. Now, I want to be careful with stories like this. In this story, I think for the most part, since that day, I have harbored no ill, feel, Ill will towards my stepdad, Jim. Now, there are other people I have had cathartic, forgiving experiences for, and then later on I thought, yeah, I'm going to take that back. <laughs> I still don't think it's fair. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, forgiveness is the sense that I want things to be fair. And fair from my perspective. Because like the story Jesus tells about how much we have been forgiven, I'm not, I'm not counting that. I'm only counting what I'm owed when I'm wanting things to be fair. But, so, the question, can you forgive someone who is dead? Yes, you can, I think. I think you can. I think, again, you can be open to wanting relationship. Yeah, Laurie. Right. What, what Lori's asking, if you didn't hear, was how do we not read Matthew 6.14? And I'm going to put a word in your, in, that you didn't say, but how do we not become transactional about our relationship to God? Because that's what it sounds like. I think that is a, an imposition we're giving to that. I think that's a way we've become as humans. That's how we, make, we figure out the world can work is transactionally. I do this, he does that. Here, I, I was sharing with Peter. 
Dallas Willard was a, a professor, a philosophy professor, and died recently, but had a marvelous grasp of the spiritual life. Wonderful Bible teacher. And he had a, a, a unique way of entering evangelism. And he was brilliant, smart. He could, he could have sort of answered every hard question philosophically, like, if there is a God, then why do babies die? And, you know, all the hard things. That, but he could, have, he could have just erased them all. But that's not how he managed sort of his evangelism. He did it this way, when he felt resistance from somebody. He would simply ask them this question. Do you want there to be a God? And I, I think that's, in one sense, I love that question. If I were to impose that on Jesus' prayer, it would be like this. Carl, do you want to be God? Do you want to be in charge of doling out the forgiveness? Who gets what? Is that the job you want? Do you want to own justice? Are you willing to trust me for that? Do you want there to be a God who will take care of you? And I think in some ways that the way I would answer that question is, do you want to forgive? It's not so transactional. Did I forget something? Did, did I omit something? It's about what I, my desire, which is a surrender to that forgiveness. What can we do? I, I, I wanted to not omit that I haven't really told you what we can do. What do we do? Like, how do we forgive? Is there, do we, there's things that can help. Um, I, sh I, I, I stopped short earlier when I was reading this passage. This is the Colossians passage. Let me read for you what I think is not the answer, but part of the answer. Part of the reason why I think it's worth getting up and driving in the snow and the cold to be together. Why I appreciate that people who can't or have other reasons, you know, watch online, I think that's, that's really helpful. Or I often will listen to sermons um, on, on the podcast but what I think is more valuable is, is this. And in that same passage, I'm going to reread it, and I'm going to finish reading it this way. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Gosh, that's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't that, I mean, gosh, what, a, what an expression of what could be. Now, how am I going to experience that? Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom that he gives. I think for those of us who struggle with forgiveness, one of the ways that God has sort of 
put into place to help us is if we will tell each other our stories. I think the most perhaps significant best first step you can make if you feel like you're stuck in unforgiveness is to simply tell a group of friends I think I'm stuck in unforgiveness. There is something about the story as it's been written that we've interpreted as simply me and God alone. And almost always the, the story was told and written in a group like this, just like this. This very letter was, was read in a group of people listening. One of the steps we can do is to share with each other our struggle, our humanity. As we close, here's what I'd like for you to do. If, as we've been having this conversation, it's possible that a a person's face or name has come to your mind, a person that you don't want to forgive. I want you to listen to this Avett Brothers song, if you want to. The lyrics will also be on the screen. And I'd like for you to just ask this one question. God, or say this prayer, I should say this way. God, help me forgive. Let's listen. When my body won't hold me anymore And it finally lets me free Will I be ready? When my feet won't walk another mile And my lips give their last kiss goodbye Will my hands be steady? When I lay down my fears, my hopes and my doubts The rings on my fingers and the keys to my house With no hard feelings When the sun hangs low in the west And the light in my chest won't be kept Held at bay any longer When the jealousy fades away And it's ash and dust For cash and lust And it's just hallelujah And love and thought Love in the words Love in the songs they sing in the church And no hard feelings Lord knows they haven't done Much good for anyone Kept me afraid 
Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. He said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it and he gave it to them and he said each of you drink it for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people it is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many whatever resource we have 
to be empowered to live as forgiving people. It's because Jesus' blood has been shed to forgive us. The white cup is juice and the brown cup is wine. We invite you to come and taste his forgiveness.